Hello, hello. Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino, and I'm joined from, by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas, representing EarthSharing.org and the Robert Schalkenbach Foundation. This program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the Bay Area and beyond. We compare and contrast the ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. Also addressed our issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income to city planning and the land value tax, a concept popularized by George. This week, we're joined by James Howard Kunstler. According to TED.com, Kunstler is the world's most outspoken critic of suburban sprawl. He believes the end of the fossil fuels era will soon force a return to smaller-scale agrarian communities and an overhaul of the most destructive features of post-World War II society. He is perhaps best known for his nonfiction books, The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, and Too Much Magic. James has also written The Cindy, sorry, The City in Mind, Notes on the Urban Condition, World Made by Hand, a fictional depiction of, quote, the post-oil American future, which became a four-part series with the subsequent publication of The Witch of Hebron, if I'm pronouncing that right, A History of the Future, and The Harrows of Spring. James Howard Kunstler is the author of eight other novels, including The Halloween Ball and An Embarrassment of Riches. He is, the con- he is a contributor to the New York Times Sunday Magazine, and op-ed page, where he has written on environmental and economic issues. Mr. Kunstler was born in New York City. He worked as a reporter and feature writer for a number of newspapers, and finally as a staff writer for Rolling Stone magazine. He has lectured at colleges across America and performed one of the most watched TED Talks. Welcome to the Henry George Program, Jim. Hi, Jacob. Nice to talk to you. And by the way, I actually have a new book out. came out about a week, a week and a half ago. It's called A Safe and Happy Place. And it's about a hippie commune in Vermont in 1968. And it's narrated by its 19-year-old female uh, main character. So you can get it at Amazon and, and uh, check it out. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you're a big fan of better urban planning to reduce sprawl and the accompanying resource destruction. Uh, you've written that, quote, it is too early to say that land value taxation has proven unequivocally to be a s- superior system of taxation, but the evidence points in that direction. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that's almost the exact same quote, indicating that you also think it's possible for a kind of spontaneous as opposed to planned way to solve the problem of urban sprawl. Do you think that's accurate? Could you please elaborate? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm not the world's greatest expert on Georgist economics and taxation, but I did write about it for my my book, um, Home from Nowhere, which was a sequel to The Geography of Nowhere. And it came about largely because... In my um, reportage for the geography of nowhere, I, I began to get in, in touch with people who were forming the new urbanist movement, which was a uh, a reform movement among architects and developers and urban planners and uh, public officials to do something about what, what has become a kind of mandated suburban sprawl. And, and when I say mandated, I mean... Um, we're, we have been literally compelled to build all of our stuff that way because of the embedded codes and, and, the, and the tax laws in our system. 
And uh, one of the, you know, uh, the, the Georgist uh, uh, land taxing system came to my attention uh, when, really after the Geography of Nowhere came out. And um, uh, it, it seems to me that it just is a, a more sensible way to attach value to land. And, and I suppose your listeners understand the basic principle of it, which is that you, you tax the value of the location of the land, the locational value of the land, rather than merely taxing the things that you put on it. So, because when you when you tax the buildings rather than the locational value of the land, you end up essentially punishing people for putting up good buildings, because the 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 bigger they are, or the or the more activity that they have in them, or the more rents they generate, the higher the taxes are going to be. And uh, the Henry George version of locational taxing does not do that. It it, it taxes the land on the. Um, the value of it in relation to its uh, centrality to the city center. And, and uh, so in the long run, it would tend to promote the uh, more compact development of city centers and to maintain the value of the city centers, even in spite of all of the other forces that promote suburban sprawl. I hope I didn't go on too long. Oh, not not at all. I, I suppose well, one way to look at it is to say that you know why would anyone ever choose to go out to the suburbs to to build there? You know, the cities where the action is. You know, but but you know, it's very expensive. well. There is an answer to that. There's a, a pretty simple answer, and it's actually uh, my new theory of history, which is that things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time, a- and it's not that hard to understand why America took up the suburban project. You know, uh, first of all, American cities grew up and, and uh, expanded in tandem with the industrial adventure, you know, so that the, the industrial era kind of comes on really strong in the early 1800s. At the same time, you know, just after America has really formally become a nation, at the same time that um, our cities are forming. And, uh, you know, the further west you go, uh, on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, the, the, um, the less older pre-1800 urban fabric there is. And um, so we developed these industrial cities, and by the mid to late 1800s, people are beginning to notice they're not very nice places to live. Um, because of the, you know, the, the factories and, and the smoke and the noise and increasingly large neighborhoods of gibbering foreigners who, who are coming over here to work in the factories. And, and uh, you know, a lot of forces are kind of gathering to, to um, prompt people to want to leave the suburbs. And at the same time, we have this mythology about, you know, life on the frontier and the frontier homestead and the, the little cabin in the woods and, you know, all of these kind of basically psychological fantasies that are embedded in American culture about being out there in, in the countryside um, on your own. And that kind of, you know, evolves into the template for suburbia. And uh, it begins with the railroad suburbs in the late 1800s. And then you get the trolley car suburbs from about 1890 to about 1920. And after that, it's all about the car and, uh, you know, the liberation of, of people from, from the constraints of the city. And we also had a very large 
um, continental-sized nation with quite a bit of uh, empty land out there in the countryside, outside the cities. And so, you know, you, you get tremendous uh, opportunities for, for uh, real estate fortunes. These are, these are conditions that didn't quite exist in the same way outside of European cities. Uh, uh, and European, European nations had uh, different sorts of uh, land tenancy laws, you know, uh, that is to say ownership laws. In, in Great Britain, for example, um, the, the system of the 99-year lease on property is much more common than in the United States where it's almost unknown. And a lot of London was developed, as a matter of fact, on 99-year property leases so that you, you never really owned the property. You, you, know, you just put a building on there with some expectation that you know, it would still be okay. 99 years later, you could, your, your, your great-grandchildren could renegotiate the lease. So um, I've also gone well, on too long about that. But there, there are reasons no, that suburbia happened, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. What would you say about uh, people who would make the comment – Oh, uh, you know, if you have to pay a tax on the land or if you only get a 99 year lease, then it's as though you don't really own the land. And this offense, this is very offensive to uh, many Americans. If, if you bring this idea up, well, you know, you didn't create the land. Um, it just existed. So, you know, why, why should you have an, an undying right to, to to own it without any kind of duty? anybody else how would you respond to that kind of well first of all the idea that people that that citizens do not have duties responsibilities and obligations to the common good is a false idea and that's never been true in america so you know the people who say don't tell me to what to do with my land you know they're simply misstating a historical uh circumstance um uh, you know uh, america has been a fairly uh, uh, liberty-based culture, but it's never been altogether, you know, your, your, your rights have never been altogether completely um, devoid of, of uh, duties and responsibilities to the public interest. You know, even in uh, colonial societies like uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, the authorities were telling people uh, how to orient their houses towards the street and, and you know, other issues of how they uh, use their property. But um, uh, even today, uh, most people must realize that to some extent or another that, you know, if they're paying any property taxes at all and just, to, you know, everybody's paying, everybody who owns property is paying some kind of property tax, you know, that you're essentially in some kind of a rental situation with the government. So, you know, I don't think that that comes as news to anybody. So uh, the idea that People out there own their property free and clear as kind of a, a universal illusion. Well, as far as you know, sharing the you know the wealth of a city, people you can look at the idea of suburbs as being kind of the the crappier way to do wealth sharing. Instead of sharing in the productive cities, you say, well, you can't you know have this land, but there's plenty of land in the suburbs. You go out there and you can you can become you know you can have your own land, do your own thing. But I I guess now we're starting to see a lot of these these suburbs run out, at least around here in the Bay Area. Uh, there's no more suburbs to to, to be had, and uh, I, I just wonder- sure. Well, you know, it had a kind of a characteristic of a Ponzi scheme too. That uh, especially in terms of paying for municipal services, that you know, you're just forever you know borrowing from the future to pay for the stuff that you're doing today, and and that has actually been the pattern 
in general for the U.S. economy for about 30 or 40 years. And it's coming. The chickens are coming home to roost on that one. I guess if you're being optimistic, you say, "Okay, we realize this doesn't work. You can't finance the suburbs out of the initial sprawl forever. It will run out. The finances don't work out. But is that too optimistic? Are we going to, you know, be goldfish and just do the same thing again? I I, I don't know if I should be optimistic. Well, that's not the only basis for the failure of suburbia. You know, suburbia is essentially a living arrangement with no future and has been for quite a while. As I said, it happened because it seemed like a good idea at the time, and it had a lot to do with the, you know, the historic circumstances that we were in. We had, we had at the time when we embarked on the suburban project, uh, uh, you know, at its uh, the mo- when we embarked on the suburban project in the 1920s. Uh, there was very little thought that we would ever have a problem with our oil supply. You know, we thought that it would not only be uh, be there perpetually, but that it would be, you know, incredibly cheap forever. And uh, we never thought we would run out of cheap, exploitable real estate on the fringe of the city. It just seemed um, impossible. But, you know, now in a place like the Bay Area, you know, you're there. So... Um, you know what seemed like a good idea at the time is is not a a good idea anymore and and not only that you know the terms of of the the quality of suburban living ha, um uh, have gone through a significant change it started out as the idea of country living for everybody that was the idea you know de- the democratic spread of uh uh, country living for all people, so everybody could share in that psychological fantasy about uh, you know living in on the frontier. But you know it very quickly mutated into a cartoon of a country house and a cartoon of a country landscape. So that when you move to the suburbs these days, there's there's very little illusion that you're moving to the country or that you're living a country life or you know a rural life. And I, I think just about everybody, especially in California, you know, understands uh, the the drawbacks and disadvantages and deformities of suburban living now after all of our experience with it. But all of that is neither here or there because the, I think the truth is we're simply not going to be economically able to carry carry on with it. You know, there are too many things militating in the background that are going to prevent us from living that way. And we we have to return to probably traditional dispositions of inhabiting the landscape, namely real towns, real villages, real cities, which, by the way, are all just iterations of the same basic template. You know, um, you know, one neighborhood is a village and several neighborhoods and a main street is a town and many neighborhoods and a few business districts uh, comprises a city. So, you know, that, that whole traditional mode of inhabiting the landscape uh, works at different scales. But it remains to be seen, you know, how, how large our cities actually can be. And, and there's more to say about that. And uh, exactly how we're going to be able to redevelop into some kind of a traditional relationship with the landscape. And, well, in terms of oil use, uh, what, what do you think is the optimal situation? Uh, you know, when I think about it, uh, pe- people, when they're imagining an environmentalist lifestyle, they, they think they think of a cabin in the woods, right? But in reality, what's environmentally the 
probably the most sustainable is living in quite a tall building where all of the the heat and the cooling is being uh, reused and people don't need to get in their cars to go to the grocery store. So so what, what would you think would be ideal? Well, that's partially a fallacy, too, actually. And, and it was it? Okay. it was actually generated by a New Yorker magazine writer named David Owen, who published a piece about 10 years ago that said that Manhattan was the greenest place to live in America because you could stack so many people up in a skyscraper and, the, you know, the footprint of the, a large population would be smaller. But, you know, that's not true either. There, there's really something in uh, – there, there's a happy medium there. And I think in the future we're probably going to discover that the skyscraper, including the residential, you know, uh, tower, the residential tall building, that these things are going to be obsolete building forms too. And that we'll discover that there's a kind of an optimum size for an urban footprint which probably in my my guess is that it's probably not much more than five, six, seven stories. Um, okay. And it may amount to, uh, you know, as simple a proposition as the number of stories that you can ask people to walk up comfortably. But, uh, but it's simply not true that, you know, if you can just uh, uh, stack so many people in an urban spot that that's the greatest solution. And in fact, it won't be. We're not going to be able to do that. We're not... You know, we're going to discover that our uh, megastructures have only one generation of life, and for two reasons. First of all, we're moving into a uh, capital-scarce period of history where we just don't have as much money as we thought we did and as we used to. And uh, we're going to have trouble with uh, fabricated modular building materials of the type that you need to keep these buildings going, even things as humble as sheetrock which require long manufacturing and mining chains. And uh, these materials may not be there for us. So, you know, uh, uh, if you ask the architects and the developers about the skyscraper, they will never come around to that idea because um, uh, for them, the, the prime mission is to maximize the Florida area ratio of any given building lot. And, and uh, so the whole, the whole question of what the city ends up being in scale is a major uh, – is we're ready for a major debate on that. And we're not prepared to have it because very few people have their heads screwed on about this. Well, I think if you look around now, it seems that is there, is there demand to live in, in the big cities we have? There's a, there's a ton of demand. I think you could say there should be demand for a city like San Francisco to grow into the next Hong Kong or something. And if you say, why aren't there skyscrapers here? It's not the, the, the capital that, that's lacking. It's the, it's the will to let it grow. No, you're quite wrong about that. And I'll tell you why. Because the places where there, where there has been enormous demand for urban living and urban real estate are places that have gotten to where they are almost completely due to the financialization of the economy in the last 50 years, and especially in the last 20, 30 years, last two, three decades. And we're coming to the end of the era of the financialization of the economy. And we're going to discover that a lot of that financialization was based on on uh, uh, putative wealth that is really not there, that was uh, in one way or another sort of based on on fraud or or is sort of hallucinated wealth. And as that vanishes, you know, we're going to be confronting a whole new situation. 
So, so for a young person who doesn't really, I guess, if they say financialization, I don't know what you're talking about. I just want to live in San Francisco, but I can't afford it. What, what do you tell them? What, why, why is this something that is a, kind of a, a passing fallacy? Well, I've said the same thing to you know people who are who want to move to Brooklyn on the East Coast, and uh, you know because the financial the financialization of the economy was you know based on a trade in securities which don't really represent what they pretend to represent. You know whether they're stocks or bonds or derivatives of one one sort or another, and we, you know we're going to. We're going to come to a reckoning with that, and it's going to change the terms of how we do business in America. Business in America is not going to be just based on uh, you know the digital trading of of uh, stocks and, and and things. You know, we're going to have to go back to the reality of life. Of you know, uh, for example, uh, you know, feeding the population, because as this is occurring, we're also uh, you know, it's also combining with what will be a resource problem, especially an energy resource problem, which is already upon us. And uh, most Americans don't understand it. There's been a, a, an enormous uh, propaganda campaign by the oil industry and, and their, their friends to um, uh, kind of flim-flam the American public into thinking that we don't have a problem with oil. But we do have a problem with oil. It's a very big problem. And it's directly related to our ability to generate credit and debt, which are more or less the same thing, and all of the financial instruments that are based on them. And as these two uh, problems combine, you know, we're going to see a lot of disorder in the financial system, as well as the, you know, the practicalities of, of daily living and the development of property. So one other argument people can make for saying why people tend to get in the same place is the network effects of, of the economy. People all want to be in San Francisco because that's where the jobs in software are. Uh, do you think that would change in the future where people don't need to be in the same place? Or do you think that's going, that network effects will persist? Well, I think – yeah, I do think that network effects will will persist. But they will persist into an economy that will go through some probably – pretty drastic and disorienting changes. And uh, uh, I, I can't say that much. I can't speak that much for the, um, the software industry, the computer industry, except to say I have a feeling that uh, most of the important developments in that are behind us and that a lot of the things that we're anticipating are probably not going to come about in the ways that we imagine. And there's all kind, you know, there are all kinds of diminishing returns and blowback that we have embedded in in our uh, economic life in America. Let me give you a funny example from the other day. You know, I had a phone, uh, not a phone call. I had an email from a guy who uh, told me with a sort of a sense of triumph that um, it was a great thing that the electric car was coming along because it would it would put the oil industry out of business and then we wouldn't have to bother with fossil fuels anymore or burning fossil fuels and then we'd all be good with electric cars. It didn't seem to occur to this guy that if you kill the oil industry, you won't have any asphalt for repairing the roads that the electric cars are, are, are supposed to run on. So, you know, I, I think the kind of thinking that we're seeing out there uh, is very short-sighted, and people aren't really connecting the dots. 
Actually, uh, just on that idea about like asphalt, there's an interesting article in the New Yorker this week about uh, the scarcity of sand in making asphalt, and you realize that scarcity can pop up just about anywhere. We I, people don't realize that resources run out just when you least expect it. I thought it was just yeah, like, and there's a, another thing connected with that, which is known as Liebig's law of the minimum, which is that you know you got a bunch of you got a bunch of resources or a bunch of things that you need to produce a certain kind of a product like a car and if you run out of one you can't you know it doesn't matter how much of the other stuff you have you can't make the the car you know if you you know if you run out of uh uh copper if you run out of lithium for a battery if you you know if you run out of one thing or another you're not that that will make it not work and that's exactly what you see with this idea that we're going to be able to have electric cars without asphalt you know, if you don't have the pavements, you're oh. not going to be able to run the cars. And the, on, the only other way to make pavement that we know about so far is concrete. And concrete is, uh, requires enormous amounts of heat to manufacture. So, uh, you know, w- that generally has come from fossil fuels. Now, you could say, oh, well, we Man- can make it out oh. of nuclear energy. Well, yeah, except that we're, you know, we're reaching the end of the life of, of many of the nuclear power generation plants out there. And we're not uh, seeing any any intention of replacing them, any serious intention. So, so uh, you know, th- there there are, there's a lot of blowback in there, and there are a lot of unforeseen problems in there that we're not taking into account. For many people, their opposition to car culture and sprawl, you know, really stems from an opposition to technological advancement, or at least a a more of a, a, a pessimism or a lack of techno utopianism. And, you know, it seems that uh, your approach is merely that technology should conform to standards of livability and sustainability. Uh, do you think it's possible to respect these values, even with, you know, thousands of years from now, futuristic technological advancement? Um, you know, when we have things, perhaps when we have things like nanotechnology, mega scale engineering in outer space, you know, some far-flung type stuff. Do you see a, a way to synthesize these two values? Well, uh, you know, my position these days, having written a book called Too Much Magic, and the subtitle of that was Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation, my position is that a great deal of what you're describing goes into my folder that, uh, that is labeled techno-narcissism or techno-grandiosity. You know, I think we have... We have way overblown notions about what we're really able to do or what these things will do for us. So uh, I don't take a lot of that stuff really seriously. I, in fact, I go so far to say that we would benefit much more from a timeout from technological so-called progress than from continuing on the same track we're on at the moment. And and in any case, I think we're going to get it, whether we want it or not. I think we're going to have a timeout from what we regard as technological progress, whether we like it or not. Um, now, to answer the first part of your question, which is uh, sort of about the quality of the environments that we produce uh, using technologies such as the automobile, I think what we've learned, what we've demonstrated over the last you know, 100 years is that we've created an everyday uh, uh, environment that is uh, extremely punishing to the human spirit, to the human neurology, to human psychology, that 
Uh, we've created everyday environments that that uh, people uh, really hate, that make them feel bad. And I think you can describe this pretty pretty simply, that um, the immersive ugliness of the American landscape as we know it today is entropy made visible. It's as simple as that. And entropy, of course, is that force in physics and in nature that drives things towards stasis and death and, you know, darkness and cold. And um, uh, I think people perceive that in, in the horror of the American suburban landscape, you know, with all of its ghastly furnishings and accessories, the, the muffler shops and the highway strips and the nine lane highways and the, you know, the, the on ramps and the off ramps and the, the traffic and, and, uh, the one story horrible tilt up buildings and the clownish fast food buildings and, you know, all of that crapola just, uh, people probably, you know, as an empirical matter, I think they find it tremendously neurologically disturbing. But we're immersed in it, and, and I, I suppose that most people kind of feel they're stuck with it, you know, and I think we kind of are. Well, but surely, uh, you know, things like the polio vaccine, um, the fact that we, you know, we now have anesthesia, so people don't have to go under surgery and feel enormous pain. These are not the type of technological advancements you'd like to be put on pause. Sure, we have, you know, negative things like the way car culture has. Yeah, I'm not a Lud- I'm not a Luddite. Um, but I, I do think that uh, we have to view the last 200 years of industrial and technological uh, civilization as being something of an anomaly in human history and not necessarily a permanent condition that continues to just arc upward forever. You know, I think that, you know, we're living in a universe of sine cosine waves in which things go up and things go down and things go up and things go down. And I think that we're, you know, we're heading for uh, a a less progressive and and, uh, less innovative period of history. And a lot of the fantasies that we have are simply, you know, not going to come true. I find that, for example, Elon Musk's fantasy about traveling to Mars and establishing colonies on Mars to be absolutely idiotic. We haven't even demonstrated that we're capable of living on this planet successfully, and it's set up perfectly for human beings. So, you know, we want to go to a a planet that's millions of miles away, that is completely inhospitable to life as we know it, and we think we're going to succeed in colonizing it. He's out of his mind. And the fact that, uh, you know, people unquestionably accept his fantasy, I think, is a kind of lunacy, and we can't afford to be that crazy anymore. You know, we, there are too many things going on w- with us that are going to be enormous problems. And, uh, you know, we don't have time for that nonsense. So as far as like the suburbs and just kind of the overall, uh, you know, mental psychic effect it has, I, it, definitely the suburbs today are uglier than the suburbs of the 1920s or 1950s. I, there's a downward trend. Do you think it's do you think it's plunging further and further down? Well, yeah, I think the quality, you know, when when suburban life was first uh established, uh, there, you know, we, we had, uh, we had carried over, uh, a lot of habits and customs and practices from an earlier period that, you know, still allowed us to build things that, that were fairly satisfying. And, you know, for example, 
uh, the the just the sheer carpentry in 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 uh, houses in the uh, the turn of the twentieth century. You know, these are these are some of the most beautiful houses that America ever produced. And but it was it had a lot to do with the fact that um, we had a lot of very skilled and fairly cheap labor. You know, we had stone cutters. We had really excellent carpenters who, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon that I've noticed that as the tools have gotten better for building stuff, in the la- especially in the last couple of decades, you know, with the, the laser-guided measuring devices and the uh, compound miter saws and, you know, all these great new tools, the work is actually getting worse. So that you go to the average new suburban McMansion, the carpenters are so unskilled that even with all these great tools, they can't make a 45-degree miter on a door surround meet without a quarter-inch gap, you know, between the two miters. So, uh, yeah, th- you know, I think that there, there were periods uh, in American development, land development and, and building that, you know, were better than others. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're just in a kind of unfortunate, sad period. But, you know, a lot of it also had to do with the amount of uh, money and a lot of the credit that has been available for people to borrow from the future, to to have the stuff and build the stuff that they do today. Well, a big ar- a Henry George type argument you can make is that when the land was cheap but the houses were nice, you're paying for the house. You want the house to be nice, but now when people are getting their big mortgage for 30 years, they're largely paying for the land. And the house, it's just basically the bare minimum that will get you agree to that location. They're actually largely paying for the loan. Yeah, and then the, you know, the interest, I mean, the interest on it on top that of it. they're going to rack up in the course of their their uh, you know their servicing their mortgage is going to be uh, probably more than the the cost of the house nominally. Yeah, you start paying for the actual house and land many years into it after you just pay off <laughs> the, the interest on it. But yeah, I mean, it's if you're just you know building the house yourself, it wouldn't be thirty years of labor even for a really nice house. You know? Yeah, and, and, oh, of course not. And, but and also remember, you know, what we take to be the normal mortgage of our time was really an innovation that really didn't happen until about the 1930s. You know that. The, the standard for, for a while in America when, when mortgages first came out was, you know, you put 25% down on, on, on the cost of the house. And today people, you know, they put, you know, 10% or less down. And um, they have very little principle involved in the whole thing. And it ends up being just a kind of uh, uh, elaborate rental agreement between you and the mortgage holder. I mean, it's not really that much different than the classic feudalist idea of you're mostly just, you know, paying off just for the ability to live on the land. It's look at the poltroons of New York hundreds of years ago. It's the same. Patroons. Oh, excuse me. A poltroon is a, a poltroon is a knavish person. Yeah. So sorry. Sorry about that. The the patroons of New York a hundred years ago. I mean, the the patroons of this day are, are the are the you know the mortgages you need for the for the for the bank to to live on the land in your own own town. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, that that's just another way of saying that we, uh, you know, we find any way possible to borrow from the future to pay for what we got today. Uh, the trouble is, is that the future is not going to be as generous as we thought it was. You know, we're going to have problems with the with the resources in the future, especially the capital resources. Yeah, I guess, but people, I guess, have a tendency to speculate. You hope that, okay, I'll borrow for the future, but it'll, it will work out for me. And for a while, it did. And their optimism did work out. And, you know, is is it in our human nature to just make dumb bets like this over and over again? Well, you know, I think, 
it's probably demonstrably in our human nature to think that whatever's going on now will continue forever. And that's just obviously not the case. You know, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to everything, uh, including many of our social and economic arrangements. And, you know, I'm constantly impressed by the assumptions that people make about how stuff is going to continue into the future, you know, especially economic matters. So um, uh, we need to wrap our heads around the idea that things can change pretty drastically and they can do it pretty quickly. And it is especially in the nature of complex systems of the sort that we are deeply embedded in that we have embedded ourselves in, that complex systems are ten, uh, have a tendency to sharp uh, and fairly catastrophic failure when they, when they do fail. You know, let me give you an, another financial example. The, um, the uh, condominium system for financing uh, property development has been a fairly new idea. It really didn't it really didn't come on big time until the 1970s in the USA. And the condominium idea is this. You take a big structure like, uh, you know, an apartment building with 100 apartments in it, and you break it up into 100 separate ownerships uh, legally, and then they all pay, uh, you know, they all pay into a property owner's association on top of their mortgages. And the property association um, takes... It's theoretically takes care of the building. And what you're going to see, I believe, is that this financing experiment is going to fail. And, and it's going to fail because if you get into a situation where uh, even a small percentage of the members of the property uh, association or the homeowners association get into trouble and can't pay their mortgages and can't pay their, their management fees, that property association is not going to be able to take care of the building, is not going to be able to pay the taxes. So these property associations are going to fail when, you know, just a few people uh, in the unit, you know, in, in, the, in the, uh, the building are unable to pay their property association fees or their mortgages. And it takes very few of them to screw up that system. And so, you know, what seemed like a good idea at the time to condominiumize every building in America is going to turn out to be a tragic kind of blunder. But, you know, as I said, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and then things change, and it's not anymore. We saw that with ex-urban malls, and now the, the dead malls are littering every uh, city of the, of the country. It seemed like a great idea. They go on, but as soon as they start to fail, it just it, there is a domino effect, certainly. Right. It's a similar thing, although... You know, obviously, you, you know, the individual store owners in a mall don't own their don't own the property. I mean, it's but what they but the way it's similar is that it, it doesn't take that many vacancies for a shopping mall to stop being a profitable proposition. So, you know, you get a mall that is starting to lose tenants and then very swiftly the whole thing goes down, you know, and uh uh, you know, the one of the you know, one of the first signs of failure is when the wig shops start moving in and the marginal businesses, you know, replace the chain stores and the the Eagle Outfitters and the gap goes away. And, you know, you get uh, somebody selling secondhand model railroad roading stuff. And and, uh, you know, that's the end. So, yeah, um, there are a lot of financial arrangements that we're now uh, stuck with. 
that are probably going to cause a good deal of harm to our culture uh, and, and fairly soon because we are on the verge of going through a financial workout that is going to uh, reestablish. Uh, we're going to see a, a general revaluing of all kinds of things, including the price of money as is expressed in interest rates and the value of currencies and the value of securities that are based on those currencies and based on the real activity that's going on behind the securities, not just companies buying back their own stocks. And, um, you know, there's going to be a, a, a big uh, recognition that a lot of the wealth that we thought was there is actually not there. So when we said wake shop a moment ago. I'm reminded I just visited my uh, grandma in Elyria, Ohio, a small town outside of Cleveland that's getting smaller. And a, a wig store is the only uh, thing downtown that is not going out of business. And I guess where do you think a small city like that really has in, in this vision of the future? A city that used to be bigger, but now people are leaving for Cleveland, leaving for Chicago, leaving for all the bigger cities. I think we're going to be really surprised at how the trends change. You know, whatever the trends are now, uh, once again, do not assume that they are permanent conditions of the of, of uh, you know the human project. Um, in fact, what I think will happen is because our cities are currently overscaled, you know, they have attained a scale of operation that is simply unsupportable, unsustainable, and can't go on. And, and I think this will be recognized when, we, uh, when, the, when the economy becomes definancialized. I think we will see a movement that will surprise a lot of people, and that is a movement back to smaller towns, a movement back to smaller cities that are scaled to the economic and resource realities of the future, which are going to be more austere than the, than the conditions that we think we're in today. And we're also going to see a phenomenon where, because of some of the things I've touched on already, we're going to see a lot of trouble with uh, agriculture the way we do it now, which is to say industrial agriculture, where you're basically growing all the food for America um, based on, on oil and natural gas-based um, uh, products that you put on a sterile soil medium to grow the corn. And there, it's also heavily based on, on debt and financing and credit. And as that becomes a problem, I think you will see the places that are successful will be the places that, are, uh, that are, have some meaningful relationship with agriculture and food production that is done differently. I think our farms are going to have to become smaller and probably will require more human attention to, to make them work. Um, and the places that are not able to sustain agriculture near them are going to be places that get into trouble. You know, I think places like Phoenix and Los Angeles and, you know, basically most of the places American, people shouldn't live. Well, I think basically most of the American Southwest and the Rocky Mountains are going to be troubled places for that reason. And, um, we're making a lot of assumptions about about things continuing uh, that are going to prove to be not true. So, the, uh, especially the the giant metroplex cities, as they're called, um, uh, I think are going to come into 
they're going to come under a lot of pressure. And uh, I, I think we will discover that we just don't have the mojo to uh, take care of them, to fix them, to raise the taxes necessary to keep them running. You know, every place from Houston to Los Angeles, San Francisco, Phoenix, Atlanta, etc. I wanted to ask you more about farms. Uh, you said that they need more human attention. And one of the things that greatly attracted me to uh, land value tax was the idea that, hey, if we move taxes off of people for working and exchanging and instead put the taxes on the land, then all of these huge you know, monoculture uh, farms that, you know, are bad for the environment and, um, you know, are heavily subsidized, uh, basically it, it would encourage more laborers on, on the farms and they'd get paid better because there'd just be a greater uh, demand for people if you, if you want to economize on land and not on uh, people. And, and I'm, you know, I'm wondering, uh, you know, to what degree do you think that the farms could move closer to the cities uh, and that, you know, that, that might be a good thing? Um, you know, there's also demographic shift where, you know, people kind of move into cities and have less children. Uh, do you think land value tax playing a, a role in, in this future could possibly avert some of the, um, yeah, the horrible prognostication um, not in terms of the quality of the prognostication, but the, the outcome that you've mentioned. Well, I think there are many forces that are now in motion that are going to compel us to live differently and grow our food differently. And it's, you know, you have described certain forces that, that are currently with us that may not be with us in the future. Uh, but there are many other forces, some of which I've described, that I think will basically compel us to make farms smaller, to um, uh, it, it will require more people to work on them as we have fewer uh, gasoline, fossil fuel, diesel-powered machines. And, you know, l let's face it, we also have a very large population of people who are doing nothing right now. And uh, uh, nobody seems to know what will happen to them. And I think what you'll see is that a lot of them will be moving back into agriculture. Now, this is a, a notion that a lot of people may find abhorrent because it has overtones of uh, feudalism or, or uh, you know, sharecropping or all kinds of historic circumstances that people find very unappetizing. But nevertheless, I think that circumstances are going to compel us to do it. One of the problems we have in America is that we are very confused. Uh, we, we're, we, we really don't have any boundary between our wishes and, and, and what we're really able to do. It's very fuzzy. And I think what we're going to discover the hard way is that reality has mandates of its own. And reality will compel us to do things, you know, whether we wish uh, these things to happen or not. And one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to have to probably devote more of our labor and more of our time and attention to food production because the idea that you can produce uh, cheese doodles for everybody in America, you know, using only, you know, three farmers to do it all, you know, that, that, that idea is going to go away and we're not going to replace them with robots, you know, we're probably going to have to just do farming a lot more carefully. And the places 
where you can still do that are going to have high value. For example, uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the region around the Great Lakes is, in my opinion, in my opinion, deeply undervalued today. You know, this is a place, first of all, the Great Lakes are kind of like the freshwater Mediterranean Sea of America. You know, it's a, a massive uh, uh, opportunity for transportation to get things from point A to point B that we hardly use anymore. The other thing about the Great Lakes is that, uh, you know, it's marvelous farmland all around the Great Lakes. You know, Michigan, which is surrounded by water, is one of the great farming areas of the United States. And, um, you know, you can grow anything there. You can go gr grow grain. You can grow fruit. You can grow timber. Uh, um, I think we're going to discover that these places have tremendous value and a lot of the towns in these places that are currently way undervalued and, and, and maybe even, you know, still losing population, they're going to become important places again. Uh, I do, on the whole, think that the population is not going to continue growing the way it has, for, and for one reason or another. And um, I think we should be prepared, probably, for you know for that uh, eventuality too. So, as far as as change, as far as cities changing, and the, the boom and bust cycle of cities can be really painful. The boom tends to have a certain amount of psychic pain as far as sprawl and overpopulation and capacity goes, and the bust cycles are bad too because after a sprawl, you tend to see a lot of vacancies and you tend to see a lot of things go into blight. Uh, I guess if a person bullish on a land tax would say cities could have a more sane boom and bust cycle around a core instead of this sprawl. And I, I, I guess the idea is, do you, do you see this, this bus cycle, especially in sprawl, as being uh, you know, unnecessary? Do you think there's any reason we should have abandoned houses outside Detroit, for instance? Well, a lot of what you're describing is the result of the, the tremendous deformations and dislocations of the industrial era. And we've had 200 years of that, and, and we think that the, the cycles associated with that are normal. But they may not be historically. You know, the, the, the historic cycles might be larger and uh, longer. And, and um, uh, for, example, for example, the Roman Empire and the city of Rome. You know, Rome went from a city of uh, over a million people at its height, probably around, I don't know, 200, 300 A.D., to being uh, pretty much uh, just a town of about, you know, 20,000 people in the, um, you know, the 1500s. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that, that uh, you're going to see remarkable changes in what, how those cycles play out in the America of the future. It's not going to just be a repeat of, you know, the, you know, the great bust of 1850 and the great boom of, it, of you know, uh, you know, 1885 or, you know, it, it's going to be a different thing. We're, we're, we're leaving behind the, the techno-industrial era. We're moving into something else. I don't think it's going to be quite as snazzy as the techno-utopians believe. And, uh, you know, the, the, the manifestations in growth and development are going to be way different. So are you describing just a smaller role for bankers and credit in the future or do you Absolutely. I mean that's what I say when when I speak about the definancialization of the economy. There's going to be less capital. We're we're already having trouble with capital formation 
because of the deformations of excessive debt. And uh, that's only going to get more extreme. You know, we're going to see wealth drain out of this society. Uh, A lot of it, as I said, will be wealth that wasn't really there in the first place. It was just kind of fantasized and assumed and, and notional. But the um, process of draining that wealth out of the society is going to um, increase in velocity, and we're going to get poorer faster, and we're going to have a lot less to work with. And it's not going to be about generating more and more debt for the future because, you know, the problem with, the problem with this kind of a contraction is when you demonstrate that you already can't pay off your present debts – you're not going to be able to generate new debts because no one will want to lend you money because they know that you already can't pay back your old debts. And that's exactly the situation we're in on the macro level in the really worldwide, but especially in America. So as, as, as far as like heuristics for making our cities more livable, I mean, people would make shortcuts and saying short blocks make things, you know, uh, people enjoy that. Long blocks you can't walk around are, are hell. Uh, do you think those are useful as far as putting things together? And can they really? There is a whole there is a whole battery of principles and methodologies for designing cities better than we do. And a lot of it is embodied in the new urbanist movement, which I became very involved with in the 1990s. And it's a movement that continues. Uh, and uh, they have campaigned to, to design uh, towns and cities with more intelligence and more artistry uh, than we have brought to it in our time, mostly because um, most of the urban design that we've had in our lifetimes has not even been urban design. It's just traffic engineering. And that has produced these immersively ugly, horrible, punishing environments that we're in. And, the, the, you know, the, the more we can get a, a, a away from that and back to something approaching real artistry um, in, in building and designing and, and, de- and developing property, you know, I think the, the happier we're going to be, even if we are a poorer society financially. How do we do that? Is, is it just a matter of, you know, uh, digging out this almost forgotten knowledge from the new urbanists and saying, you know, put put them in positions of, of power to design cities? Or do do we need to do other things like, for instance, the fiscal system, land value tax? Are there other things that, uh, in addition to that, that we haven't discussed that would play a, a key role in our sort of, you know, list off some really important things that, that would make that possible. Cause well, the we most important we thing to understand is this. It, you know, it's not going to be a, a top-down planning uh, process. Um, societies and the things that they do and the ways they behave are emergent phenomena. That is to say they are self-organizing. And cities and towns themselves uh, must be thought of as organisms, you know, kind of living things that, that – uh, uh, grow emergently, and they grow emergently in response to the circumstances that reality presents at a certain time, and that's how this will happen. Things that seem impossible today, like building a beautiful public building, will be normal, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, as it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, if you look at the, you know, if you, if you look at the older, better. if you look at the older courthouses and schools and, and other, other public buildings around America, you know, it's, it's astonishing how beautiful we were able to make them. And then we just stopped doing it. 
You know why? Well, because circumstances allowed us to get away with it for a while. And, and now they won't. So we're, we're going to have to go back to something different. Uh, we've been talking to James Howard Kunstler. Uh, his new book is A Safe and Happy Place. We've been talking about uh, the good and bad of what the future of cities will be. Uh, thank you very much for, for being here today. Okay. It was a pleasure. It really is. Yeah. So this is the Henry George program. It's a presentation in KSSU Stanford. You can find old episodes and more at the website, seethecat.org, KSSU Stanford.